The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub, where we're online. Uh, I'm Eve Patton. I'm the director of the Hub, which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. And just to explain that a bit for anyone who may be joining us for the first time this evening, the Hub is the centre point for academic research, uh, various funded projects, uh, and in normal times, a number of visiting fellowships, which are all dedicated to furthering the way that we understand the world from the perspectives of literature, history, uh, law and education, languages, ethics and religion, or from uh, various ambitious interdisciplinary perspectives where we reach across and we reach across increasingly now from the arts and humanities to collaborate with our colleagues in uh, science and technology. Also very important is that the Trinity Long Room Hub is a center point for engagement with the wider public uh, outside Trinity. And this, this evening's lecture comes under that brief. The Humanities Horizons Lecture is one of our annual signature public events. It was established in 2013 uh, with the aim of creating an opportunity for us to reflect a bit on the role and the responsibilities of the arts and humanities in a fast changing society. And since 2013, uh, you will, many of you know that we've had several very distinguished lecturers, uh, professors Peter Strohschneider, Jeffrey Krosick, Jot Learson, uh, Homi Baba, and in 2019, um, Professor Anthea Butler, uh, who many of you will remember gave a, a game changing lecture on the subject of Irish slaves in America, myths, history, and the problems of social media. Uh, what a pleasure it is for me to introduce tonight's speaker, someone who has been a real friend to the Trinity Long Room Hub for several years now. Uh, you're going to hear this evening from Andrew Thompson, who is Professor of Global and Imperial History at Nuffield College in Oxford, and also co-chair of Oxford's Global and Imperial History Centre. And good evening, Andrew. Andrew's interests, uh, his research interests align with something that many of our own academic community are concerned with at present, the histories and legacies of empire. And in this context, he's written widely on topics ranging from colonial South Africa to transnational migration uh, and to the function of public memory. Uh, he's currently researching international humanitarianism and uh, the aid sector in the wake of empire. Uh, and this is the subject of his forthcoming book, Humanitarianism on Trial, which will be published uh, by Oxford University Press. Beyond his influential scholarship, we know Andrew as a distinguished leader in higher education and research. Uh, from 2015 to 2020, he served as executive chair of the United Kingdom's Arts and Humanities Research Council. And in this role, uh, Andrew secured several 
major grants for initiatives in heritage, uh, in research into modern slavery and human rights, and uh, for a groundbreaking creative industries, industries program. Uh, so he is therefore that rare beast, uh, a scholar who has managed brilliantly to combine his individual research interests with a genuine and broad public humanities commitment. Uh, I've given you uh, only the briefest summary of his wide-ranging professional engagements and his many achievements. Rightly, he was awarded a CBE in the 2021 New Year's Honours List for his services to research. This evening, Andrew will address what has been termed the fourth industrial revolution, the rise of technology in all facets of our lives. In the Trinity Long Room Hub, this is a subject that we find ourselves turning to repeatedly, that still uncertain relationship between the arts and humanities, and indeed between the human and the technological systems and challenges of the 21st century. And indeed our pioneering Marie Curie Human Plus program is uh, about to recruit a number of high level researchers who are going to be dedicated to exploring this very theme. What is the interface between these two cultures? How do we reconcile apparently competing interests, traditions, values? We'll hear from Andrew Thompson on this subject this evening. And after the talk, we'll be opening up to uh, questions and answers and comments uh, from you in the audience. So please do put your questions or your comments into the Q&A panel. Uh, if you can, please do say your name and perhaps where you are joining us from. Uh, and if you're listening on Facebook, on our Facebook stream, you can also put questions into the Facebook panel and we'll try to take as many of those as possible. And of course, as always, if you're tweeting, please do tweet, uh, use the handle, we're using the handle TLR Hub and uh, the hashtag Hub Matters. And those details will, uh, I think, go in the, the chat for you this evening. So for now, let me welcome Andrew Thompson once again and invite him to speak to you on the age of the technocene why we need the arts and humanities in the fourth industrial revolution. Andrew. Thank you for that very generous and warm introduction, Eve. Um, and it is a real pleasure and privilege to be with you all to give this distinguished lecture tonight, um, particularly in view of um, that rather stellar um, cast of characters who've uh, delivered previous lectures. I can't promise to, to live up to them, but I do want to have a good go at this subject, the fourth industrial revolution with you tonight. And I'll be interested to uh, hear your perspectives and take your questions afterwards. Of course, the Anthropocene is a familiar refrain to all of us, an age during which human activity is understood as the dominant influence on our environment. But if we were to buy into just a fraction of the claims made for the fourth industrial revolution, then the age of the technocene would seem to have equal justification. We're living at a time when a new digital technological revolution, enabling the extraction of data and its transmission in new forms 
is changing the ways in which we live and work and relate to each other. Could I have the first slide, please? And the one after that, please. Thank you very much. So in the fourth industrial revolution, Klaus Schwab, who's uh, pictured here, he's the founder and executive chair of the World Economic Forum. Schwab goes as far to argue that the rapid advances in technology that we're experiencing are changing what it means to be human. Quote, the changes are profound. There's never been a time of greater promise or potential peril. Three previous industrial revolutions, to be sure, created major societal changes, but today's transformation is said to be unique. Unique in terms of the speed with which innovation is taking place and technologies are spreading around the world. Unique in terms of the way in which emerging technological breakthroughs, whether it's in AI or robotics or the Internet of Things or nanotechnology or gene sequencing and quantum computing, the way in which they're amplifying each other, but also unique in how the fusion of these new technologies is blurring boundaries between the physical and digital and biological worlds. Now, as with earlier revolutions, the literature on the fourth industrial revolution is shot through with unease regarding how under the weight of these historic changes propelled by digital power, technology and society can continue to coexist. And that's really the running theme of my lecture tonight, that relationship between technology and society in the face of this fourth industrial revolution. With the combination of ever high, uh, higher computing speed and vastly more voluminous data, Automation, which you might define as artificial replacing human intelligence, is emerging as a particular concern. So how are we to make sense of this fourth industrial revolution? It's arguably as hard to understand a technological revolution while it's actually happening as it is to know what a hurricane will do while its winds are still gaining speed. What would be the changes that we're not anticipating at the moment? What are the changes that we may be aware of, but that are going to arrive sooner than we expect? Are we waiting too long to face important choices about the technology of our times? If I can have the next slide, please. Well, the historian and media don, Neil Ferguson, recently remarked that despite overwhelming evidence of the accelerated pace of technological change, we humans, remain cro uh, chronically bad at making realistic projections about our future. But projections and predictions are hard to resist, if I can have the next slide. And citing Carl Frey and Michael Osborne at the University of Oxford, Ferguson observes that a half of jobs in the US are at risk over the next decade or two from this fourth industrial revolution. Labour substitution by machines is exercising our generation as much as it did our Victorian predecessors. Will today's technological innovation destroy some jobs and replace them with others? Well, a recent OECD report argues that a process of creative destruction will radically change people's jobs 
and that governments of rich as well as poor nations are failing to prepare their workforce for that happening. Digital devices are everywhere. 40% of the value of the average automobile is now in the form of digital technology. A combination of globalization and technology is set to put American truck drivers out of work, just as motor cars and railways made horse-drawn carriage drivers redundant a century earlier. And digital technology is posing this question as much for the professional middle classes as it is for manual workers, perhaps more so. An Oxford Martin School survey on the automation of the professions predicts approximately half of total employment to be at risk. Next slide. Now, some are more sanguine about automation. The academic David Grieber is amongst them and his Times Book of the Week, Bullshit Jobs, A Theory, opines that an awful lot of jobs in our modern economy are nothing short of pointless. A person employed in a BS job, defined as one the holder knows to be such, but must pretend otherwise, may be inclined to see the fruits as much as the faults of automation. Until, that is, AI deprives them of a stable basic income and the security that employment, however mundane, brings. Next slide. An array of algorithms are coming for our jobs, the New York Times journalist Kevin Roos warns us in his book, Nine Rules for the Human in the Age of Automation. For Roos, future-proofing ourselves for the various digital processes that can carry out tasks previously done by humans means not competing with this tech revolution on its own terms, but leveraging the advantages that humans have over robots. And he sees these advantages principally as creativity and craftsmanship. But as one reviewer of his book remarks, the reader is more likely to walk away from Roos's nine rules with a sense of foreboding than a sense of survival. Next slide, please. Roos's journalistic musings are broadly endorsed by one of today's leading writers on the new globalization of the 21st century. Professor of International Economics, Richard Baldwin. He speaks of a globotics upheaval whereby telemigrants or foreign freelancers, if you like, and white collar robots are coming for the same service sector professional jobs at the same time and driven by the same digital technologies. When machine translation went mainstream in 2017, Baldwin argues, anyone with a laptop could potentially commute to American and European offices. Translation software removed language barriers and collaborative software platforms allowed widespread shifts in working practices. So it's office, not manufacturing jobs that are now at risk, according to Baldwin. A combination of remote intelligence and artificial intelligence is injecting pressure into our social and political and economic systems faster than those systems can absorb it. And this brings us to the question of what exactly is different about today's big tech revolution? What are its defining characteristics? Well, the thing to me that most makes the tech giants of today different 
is data. Data, their raw material, more or less acquired for free, and the trails and troves of which they amass, uh, amass skillfully in order to mine every ounce of it. And it's through such data mining that the big tech companies can learn about the patterns of our behavior and drive their profits by charging advertisers and retailers for what is then revealed. And big data is decisively tilting the playing field in favor of these big tech companies. And the pandemic has arguably only served to reinforce that effect. The West Coast of America's tech giants have not only risen above the COVID carnage, they've actually gained from it. They've strengthened their positions at the heart of how we live, what we buy, who we talk to, and what we watch, listen to, and consume. The pandemic, for example, has propelled an enormous surge in online shopping. Amazon has spent the last year embarking on a warehouse shopping spree in New York, snatching up at least nine large new properties in the city in order to sort and store packages and satisfy customer expectations for faster and faster delivery. The lack of ownership of data felt by citizens is now part and parcel of public debate about the status of the so-called FANGs, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, and Google. It's worth reminding ourselves that before 2008, not one of these companies could be found amongst the world's largest by market capitalization. Whereas today, they occupy first, third, fourth, and fifth places. They are establishing a dominance over the public sphere not seen since the heyday of the pre-Reformation or Reformation church. Are they there to make the world a more open and connected place, to provide an indispensable community service, the NGOs of a digital world, if you like, or are they ruthlessly efficient money-making machines exploiting data-rich environments? To the question of who owns data, add, how should the fangs be regulated? Now, by regulation, I mean not simply user privacy concerns. I mean partly that, but not only that. I also mean the exploitation of the economic value of our data and who then shares in its profits. And I mean media regulation. The fangs are partly communication companies, which not only connect people, but curate news and opinion in ways that are said by some to add to a sense of social division and to smother empathy for those who think differently to us. In the constant battle for attention, they engage us with those who share our view of the world while sheltering us from those who don't. This is the so-called filter bubble, to borrow a phrase from the writer Ellie Paraza. The fourth industrial revolution has also been dubbed and criticized as a form of surveillance capitalism. Information now seems almost too valuable to get ethical about. The top five tech companies are worth double the entire British economy. It was actually the dot-com crash of 2000, so not so very long ago, 
that made the markets realize the internet wasn't making money for these tech companies and that information about users was a valuable commodity. The search engine Google suddenly did a U-turn. It started selling advertising space after 2000 and the better targeted its adverts, the more it found that they were worth. Next slide, please. The most trenchant attack on today's tech giants is that advanced by Shoshana Zuboff in her theory of surveillance capitalism. Big tech companies, Zuboff argues, are aggregating behavioral data as a commodity from which they then scrape off a valuable surplus. More than that, they're taking our data and monetizing it. For Zuboff, it's not clear that we, um, it's not that we've just failed to rein in this rogue capitalism, but that we haven't even tried to rein it in. Quote, surveillance capitalism knows everything about us, but we know little about them. Witness, for example, the growing concern about how China is harnessing the power of big data to buttress the power of the state. China's data-driven economy now accounts for over 40% of all of the world's e-commerce transactions. It's the world's leader in payments that are made by mobile devices. Alibaba, which is China's answer to Amazon, Tencent, the creator of WeChat, JD.com, these are the new retailers of the 21st century consumer revolution. But China isn't just driving shoppers online. The mass of personal data collected through digital transactions allows the Chinese authorities to check upon an individual's behavior and potentially to penalize those who step out of line. All of China's big tech companies have state representatives on their boards, and they're all obliged to share their data with the authorities. For Zuboff, the answer to the conundrum of who controls data lies in the reclaiming of ownership of data. Everybody able to see who holds their data, how they're using it, and whether they're monetizing it with a view to them putting an end to quote, the secret theft of private experience. How exactly that would work in practice is not clear from Zuboff's book. To build trust online, Tim Berners-Lee, the father of the World Wide Web, has launched a global action plan to save the internet from political manipulation. A contract with nine principles to safeguard the web, including compelling companies to simplify privacy settings by providing control panels where we as users can access our data and manage our privacy options all in one place. Meanwhile, in America, the House Judiciary Committee has called for legislation that would effectively split up big tech platforms by forbidding them from operating in adjacent lines of business to those they are already dominant in. But none of these specific recommendations have so far come anywhere near to fruition. Next slide, please. So this brings me to the title of my lecture because it's my argument tonight that the public discourse surrounding artificial intelligence and algorithms and machine learning requires the arts and humanities to provide us with three types of insight, historical, ethical, and cultural. 
to navigate and negotiate our way through this fourth industrial revolution, to grasp its opportunities, to spread its benefits, and to build public trust in technology, we're going to need the arts and humanities to guide the way. So let me explain why. And I want to begin with history. Some of us may be experiencing a fourth industrial revolution, but it's worth reminding ourselves that about a fifth of the world has yet to fully experience the second industrial revolution. Nearly 1.3 billion people still lack access to electricity. Charging a phone, let alone owning one, would likely be difficult for them. Approximately 790 million people live without regular access to clean water supply, and an estimated 1.8 billion people have no adequate sanitation. Many of those who face extreme poverty and the prospect of famine live in Africa, as we know. Yet across Africa, an Afro-tech revolution is also said to be taking place. For some, this provokes fears of a digital recolonization. The basic economic template of Europeans arriving with the power and technology and leaving with the goods and the profits is felt to be at risk of repeating itself in our generation. Others are more optimistic, however. They put their faith in so-called leapfrogging, the idea that Africa can escape its poverty and history by skipping whole stages of development, absorbing the latest technological advances, but adapting them to Africa's circumstances. Next slide, please. They point to things like the invention of M-PISA in 2007, featured here on the PowerPoint slide. For those of you who don't know, M-PISA is a system for transferring small amounts of money by mobile phone, but it's now used by 25 million Kenyans. You can't go to Nairobi and not see billboards featuring M-PISA. Next slide, please. At the heart of the equation between big tech and Africa's future development, lies the matter of ownership and control. Jumaya, dubbed the Amazon of Africa, is an e-commerce company. Jumaya claims its listing on the New York Stock Exchange shows an African tech revolution has indeed come of age. But at the most senior level, the company is managed by French executives operating out of Paris. The technicians who design and maintain its online systems operate out of Portugal, and many are Portuguese nationals. Meanwhile, much of Jumaia's capital is raised in Europe and America. Is Jumaia really African? Are old patterns of extraction reasserting themselves today and threatening Africa's homegrown tech industry at birth? Jumaia's supporters say such rehashing of the colonial past is distinctly unhelpful if not actively damaging. Next slide. Andela, which was formed in 2014, is a software development company training African coders. Its founder, Iyinolua Aboeji, also flatly rejects the idea of techno-colonialism. In fact, in a world without borders, Aboeji sees the primordial debate about what is an African company as meaningless. The nature of global capitalism, he argues, 
is such that no African tech company outside of South Africa is likely to be incorporated and to raise its own capital. Next slide. Now this brings me to the second reason for deploying a historical perspective. The technology shifts of our generation are intimately and intricately linked to the processes of globalization. As Thomas Friedman pictured here argues, the move to a digital world where we can analyze and optimize and prophesize and customize is inseparable from the move to a globalized world, a world in which we're not only increasingly interconnected, but interdependent too. If Friedman is right, then understanding the challenges posed by globalization is as vital as understanding the challenges posed by the fourth industrial revolution. They go hand in hand. The latest historical literature suggests that different episodes of globalization have tended not only to shift global connectivity to new levels, but at the same time to produce highly uneven and irregular patterns of connectedness. In the past, as much as the present, global economic integration driven by new technology brings rising inequalities. Those who benefit have to be set against those who face the burden of adaptation, winners and losers. And this brings me to the phenomenon of technology time lags, by which I mean that the biggest disruptive impacts or effects of technology revolutions are arguably felt not at the moment of invention and innovation, but rather displaced into later decades. And these technology time lags take two forms. The first form is the actual refinement of the technology itself. And today we see what I'm talking about here with the ongoing advancement of algorithms and the computing power required to, required to run them. Compared to the 1990s, algorithms are now threatening to replace not just basic, but much more complex human operations. This time lag effect that I'm talking about is nicely captured by Brian Arthur in his book, The Nature of Technology. And in this book, Arthur refers to a hierarchy of systems with much innovation actually occurring at lower levels and unfolding gradually over time. Witness aircraft manufacture, for, a, uh, for instance, you don't actually see new planes on the market very often, but you do see continuous modifications of engine technology and aircraft operating systems particularly to improve fuel efficiency. That's one form of time lag, the technology, but a second form of technology time lag is more political in nature. Governments face decisions regarding how to respond to the new forms of wealth and power to which new technology gives rise. For example, today's politicians seem much more willing to tax and regulate GM than they do to tax and regulate the digital tech giants. Google tweaks search algorithms to force its way into new markets by putting its own listings on the top of its search boxes, it eliminates competition. So should the onus of antitrust laws be on Google to show how its behavior is actually helping consumers or should it be on the regulators to demonstrate the harm? 
Now, these are emphatically not new questions. And let me try and illustrate what I'm talking about here with regard to the revolution in 19th century steamship technology and all the mechanization that then followed. The first Canadian steamship made its maiden voyage to Quebec from Liverpool in 1854. And on its return journey, that steamship likely had wheat as part of its cargo because wheat was used as ballast in steamers coming back to the UK on what was called the North Atlantic Run. Yet the mass transportation of wheat from the Canadian prairies had to then wait for another 30 years. It wasn't actually until the 1880s when steamships had reached a threshold size that made them competitive with the big iron-hulled sailing ships that steamship technology finally spelt uh, a dramatic fall in grain prices and as a result the beginning of the end of the economic power of Britain's landed aristocracy. That was the first time lag in the technology but there was also a second time lag in the politics. The politics of new steam technology had to catch up with the science from which that technology was born because states then as of now were faced with the question of what forms of wealth to tax and what forms of wealth not to tax. And the taxation of landed wealth in the form of Lloyd George's People's Budget had to wait until 1909, a further three decades after the exposure of English agriculture to intensifying foreign competition. So how societies adapt and respond to technological change is a long-standing question. History, I think, is often a poor predictive tool, but studying the past can help you to understand better the processes of change with which you yourselves are wrestling, how to get the best out of them and also to protect yourself from their downsides. Moreover, if I'm correct about these technology time lags and if the past has anything to teach us here, it's that the real repercussions of the fourth industrial revolution are probably still to come. Next slide, please. So much for history, what about ethics? Well, under the title, Algorithms of the World Do Not Unite, Financial Times journalist and self-named undercover economist, Tim Hartford, a visiting fellow at my college in Oxford, speculates on where rapidly growing computing power is taking us. Could we build an app to run a national economy? Hartford asks, and he's skeptical. But one doesn't need a national economy to demonstrate the pervasive presence of algorithms in our lives. Social media algorithms are ever more precisely honed to attract and hold our attention. The single most controversial of these algorithms may well be Facebook's newsfeed. Nearly two billion people, which is about a quarter of the world's population, log on to Facebook every month. An article position in Facebook's newsfeed depends on algorithms that are hidden in black boxes and regularly tweaked by software engineers. Many news organizations have actually altered how and what they report in the hope that their stories will be chosen in effect by a piece of Facebook software. Despite the ubiquity of these algorithms, people are unable to perceive their presence or comprehend their operation. As a line of code embedded within other technologies, 
they're silent and invisible. We just don't see at how they arrive at answers. We're offered the end product of their computation. How can you hold to account that of which you know nothing about? No wonder research funding agencies are beginning to press for big tech platforms to open up their social media data to researchers who are studying fake news and disinformation online. Then there is the problem of algorithms trained on deficient data. Awareness is growing of the inadvertent introduction of unjust or irrational bias. Risks which just multiply when the people are affected are already in some sense vulnerable, and when more and more of the world's population is being tracked by CCTV cameras. Next slide, please. Witness the negative media coverage surrounding facial recognition software for women or people of color when that software is trained on biased data sets with too many white men. What happens when data sets faithfully reflect history, but that history is by its very nature unfair? An equally disquieting prospect is presented by a recent algorithm developed at Stanford that can apparently distinguish between pictures of gay and straight men with an accuracy of over 80%. What would happen if such software fell into the hands of authorities in places where homosexuality is illegal? The optimism that led some to become starry-eyed about digital technology has certainly been dented. Understanding data to understand bias is a vitally important ethical question for our times. We need robust ethical frameworks to enable us to keep on innovating safely. And diversity, I think, is going to be the key to good practice here, by which I mean first the diversity of data, cross-checking one data set against another, maximizing the number of perspectives on the question that we're addressing but also second, a diversity of people, ensuring different viewpoints by ensuring diversity of backgrounds of people on a team, avoiding groupthink from whatever type of group we may be talking about. And thirdly, a diversity of modeling, combining statistical techniques to complement each other and move towards an aggregate answer. We live in network society where powers increasingly resides in the algorithm. Algorithms have in effect become placeholders for conversations that we don't seem to want to have, sometimes reproducing our own human mistakes, shifting power from people to technology in the name of greater efficiency, but with little public scrutiny. Powerfully predictive tools, yet full of inherent bias. Witness the recent backlash against the Home Office's use of algorithms to assess visas, or Ofqual's use of them in helping to decide last year's exam results. A judicial review scrapped the former and Gavin Williamson as education secretary eventually ditched the latter. Or alternatively, note the software everyone in Xinjiang is obliged to install on their mobile phones with police checkpoints regularly scanning for the obligatory app. 15 of the 24,000 individuals flagged as suspicious by China's integrated joint operations platform, which is a predictive policing tool, combining information collected from automated online monitoring 
into a single database, 15 of those 24,000 are said to have been sent to re-education camps. So exercising judgments on the ethics of AI to deliver much needed informed public awareness and consent is a subject which I think is going to be with us for many years to come. And that takes me finally, and next slide please, to culture. How is the seemingly inexorable integration of technology into our lives affecting our inner selves? What will be its impact upon the quintessential human capacities of self-reflection, empathy, and compassion? What challenges is this proliferation of information processed at ever greater speeds, posing to human digestion and human comprehension? As we watch, we're being watched. Will a way of life where surveillance becomes the norm feel ever more intrusive? Biometrics may help us to monitor our stress levels, but are we ready to deal with the barrage of personalized information that's involved? Are we ready for a world of wearable technology? Will some of us prove more psychologically resilient than others with this constant feedback and cognitive load. The iPhone, we might remind ourselves, was launched as recently as 2007. By 2015, there were, give or take, about 2 billion users of smartphones, which are fast becoming the primary distribution vehicle for news, but also for other forms of content, including cultural content. Advances in AI with new forms of demographic segmentation are poised now to transform the world of entertainment. The last five years have seen the rapid growth of AI across the creative industries. Algorithms that track and predict our cultural interests are now very much the norm. Sophisticated uses of data can personalize services and target consumers. The audience of the future is predicted to look very different to that of the past. But there's also a widespread assumption that AI can't be creative. For the foreseeable future, the cultural industries are said to be low risk jobs in terms of automation. Is this true? There are already examples of AI developing creative products, most obviously in the burgeoning gaming industry. And algorithms are handling language with more confidence all the time. So what about writing and journalism? Can AI move from the domains of distribution and production to those of creation and curation, from content recommendations to commissioning decisions, from the generation of music for ads to AI-generated worlds in painting or film? Between Apple and Facebook, the augmented reality race is now firmly underway. How these digital technologies create new immersive experiences and blur the boundaries between virtual and physical worlds is set to provoke new questions about our sense of humanity and how we relate to each other. Well, a few reflections in, by way of conclusion. The big thinkers of tech say that AI, artificial intelligence is the future. It will underpin everything from search engines and email to the software that drives our cars, directs the policing in our streets and helps create new vaccines. A new wave of AI systems 
are capable of learning on their own from first principles, uncovering patterns and structures that are difficult for humans to deduce unaided. These self-learning AI systems are already accelerating advances in the real world. The technology improves in sudden and often visible, very visible leaps forward. But bias is a thread more subtly woven through that technology that the tech companies are reluctant to acknowledge. What then would AI driven from a human rather than a technology, technological perspective actually look like? The machines that propelled the industrial revolution of the 19th century were those of muscle power. Those that propel the data science revolution of the 21st century are those of cognitive power. Digital and uh, communication technologies are all the time reaching deeper into our lives. The near ubiquitous presence of data is a key factor behind the big tech revolution of our generation. As data proliferates and processing power is enhanced, more data, more quickly available, more readily accessible, the fourth industrial revolution gathers pace. Do we then have the capacity to adapt? The promise and peril of this new technology are in fact two sides of the same coin. We should be asking not what these new digital communications technologies will do to us, but what we will do with them. The fourth industrial revolution is emphatically not just a technological challenge. Rather, it fundamentally questions how we build societies and communities in which people want to live and are enabled to contribute and thrive. And that in turn means developing the skills to think critically about the purposes to which AI is put. For 21st century technology and societally not simply to coexist with each other, but to benefit and profit from each other, we're going to need to embrace historical experience, ethical reasoning, and cultural and intercultural understanding, the foundational reasoning of the arts and humanities, history, ethics, and culture. Together, this triptych will help us to ensure that the new technologies of the 21st century can be trusted technologies. Technologies that truly offer the prospect, which is expressed by the UN Sustainable Development Goals, of a better tomorrow for all of us. Thank you very much for listening. Well, thank you very much indeed, Andrew, for such a rich treatment of the technology landscape and also for the prompts towards thinking about the arts and humanities and how they must respond in, in the three areas that you outline. Uh, we have questions coming, many questions coming in already. And uh, please, if uh, any of the audience would like, please do add your questions. Uh, and uh, before I go to the audience questions, um, Andrew, I wonder if I could uh, kick off by, by asking you a conceptual uh, uh, question about your, your, your interpretative framework, because um, you have talked about the revolution uh, we have with technology, but you are a historian of empire. Uh, and of course, as you will know, one popular idiom is to think about technology in terms of a new imperialism, a new colonialism, 
uh, and you did touch on this in relation to colonial extraction in relation to Africa, but was it a conscious choice to avoid the structures of imperial processes when, when outlining your view of the technological landscape? Yeah, I think it was because um, it's very hard if you take those um, big tech companies to um, neatly align them with particular nation states. Um, I mean, to a degree, you can do that, you know, with both the US and China, um, but very imperfectly. And I mean, of course, there are big arguments in the US case to what, uh, as there are in the UK case, to what um, degree our government actually has any degree or is willing to exercise any degree of control over those sort of companies. China is different, I think, as I alluded to in the lecture. Uh, and I, um, because their state and society are so much more aligned, as we all know, in, in China, and it would be usual, unusual for any Chinese company, and we saw this recently, you know, with what's happened with Jack Ma, yeah, to be um, developed that degree of in, independence and uh, ability to sort of criticize what its state, state is doing. But, but I hope I didn't, um, uh, what I didn't convey in the lecture is that these problems are uh, in any sense unique to China. I mean, I, I think that they're, they're truly universal problems. They may have a particular inflection in the case of China, but I, I think at the taproot, they are very similar for, um, for all countries at the moment. Um, as regards Africa, it, it, it is a diff difficult one. It's, um, I mean, I, I think uh, there's very much a, a divide. Those who are involved in companies like Andela and Jumaya are quite resistant to the idea of a, a neo-colonialism argument about what's happening. Um, some of those outside um, are very much framing Africa's uh, or the risk of Africa's tech revolution in those, those terms. So I think it, it's within Africa itself, opinion is um, genuinely uh, divided. Um, but it is the case if you, I mean, my uh, research was not in depth into either of those companies, I should say. And one of the things I find surprising, perhaps I shouldn't as a, as a global and imperial historian, but I still find it surprising a little bit, is that um, in the Western media, certainly the Anglo-American sort of uh, media, the, the coverage of big tech in China and big tech in Africa is exiguous to say the least. So we, we don't have a global perspective that's being played at us through our own media. Um, and so the, the discussion of companies like uh, Jumaya and Andela, uh, probably greater in Africa, but even there, not, not extensive, but in our own media are actually quite, quite scant, quite slight. But when you dig into those companies, you see that uh, in terms of their ownership, their executive leadership, and many of their employers, um, they are, they are only African up to a certain point. Thank you, Andrew. Um, we'll, we'll go to the questions now. And what I'll do is uh, select questions as best I can. And if necessary, paraphrase, because people have put in some really interesting points. Let me kick off by, by staying with the subject of Africa and uh, tap your knowledge on one of the, your areas of expertise, which is migration. We have a question from Jorgen Hartogs who's saying, thank you for the interesting lecture. And his question is, do you think current migration patterns with regard to Africa and with regard to talent moving in search of better jobs, either beyond Africa 
or perhaps into South Africa from other parts of Africa. This is being driven, obviously, by the technological revolution itself. How much are you seeing migration patterns um, change in relation to the technological revolution? That's a brilliant question, and I'm sure at the back of the questioner's mind will be if we look at that, that 19th century industrial capitalism tech revolution in southern Africa, that it propelled all, not least the mining revolution, um, the diamond gold mining revolution, propelled all sorts of new uh, labour mobilities that have had very long legacies uh, and, and can be traced through to today. Not so sure. I mean, the questioner may have um, a better answer than I do. Uh, if we look at international migration, then one interesting uh, fact or feature of Andela, which I didn't mention, is that a tiny number of African coders get to go to the US for training, but the vast majority are actually trained within Africa itself. There's a sort of hierarchy sort of there, um, and some have been sort of explicitly critical of that. We do know that in Sub-Saharan Africa broadly, but particularly, and I think the, the, the questioner is right to mention uh, Southern and South Africa, there's an extraordinarily imaginative and creative use of mobile technology. Mm. I mean, MPs is just one of very many examples in Kenya. And I, I can remember not so long ago speaking to someone very senior in BT, saying that uh, in, in that part of the world in Southern Africa, the use of technology is considerably mobile technology in advance of what we see in, in Western Europe. To what extent that is then um, propelling new patterns of labor migration, I really don't know. And I, I haven't read anything to suggest that it is, but that isn't to say that it isn't. Uh, and so maybe the person who's asked the question, if they have a view on that, might want to put you know, a comment in the chat box, but it's a great question. Please, Jürgen, if you, you want to add to that, please do put it in the chat because uh, it's a fascinating question. And uh, along with the, the, the question of migration, uh, we have a question which is really to do with generational change and generational habits. And this has come in um, from Leonard Hobbs, uh, Andrew. And Leonard is uh, Trinity's Director of Research and Innovation. Uh, he says, it is thought that the combination of machine learning and 5G will usher in the age of the robot in the next decade, uh, which will be hardware driven as opposed to today's software or data drivers. Uh, in that context, will humans lack of trust in technology inhibit the advances that could be made? Or will the tech savvy younger generation of today embrace the new era with ease? Now, I know that Leonard is, is tapping in here to the cliche that of course, the born digital generation do have a very different cognitive relationship with technology and therefore that it will be an easy road for them to navigate but that's an assumption um, and I wonder Andrew if on the basis of Leonard's question you might reflect a bit on how you see generations different generations um, capitalizing on technology in, in the yeah. context that you've been talking about. Yeah it's another great question um... A lot of the surveys that you see on big tech don't break down generationally, which is sort of interesting. You'd sort of your presumption would be that uh, they would, because there's at least as I think the questioner and you're saying, Eva, a hypothesis to be tested that you'd want to test there. Where would I start with this? Because it's a question that you could attack from many different angles or different levels. I'm 52. 
And I think that probably for many in my generation, our um, offline lives have defined our online lives. It doesn't always feel like that when you've had a day on email or a day on Zoom calls, but I think that broadly that's true. Whereas um, for my youngest daughter, who's 20, it may be the case that her online life, you know, in some ways defines her offline life. And there's been a curious inversion, yeah, in the way in which we sort of relate to technology. Of course, that then needs to be, I mean, you can see that, for instance, I would imagine that if generationally you just sort of track screen time, although it does get complicated, I think that, because, you know, there are certain professions now um, that those who are working in those professions in middle age, it is driving them to spend, particularly during a pandemic, obviously, but more and more of their time online. Um, one thing uh, I think I would say is that when there have been surveys that have been generationally sensitive about privacy and trust, they tend to show that the younger generation is willing to trade. So for the convenience of the use of technology, then it is willing to make trades on the sort of, you know, the uh, availability and use of its data. And that's quite clear. So there, there doesn't seem to be a big groundswell of opinion from the younger generation from below to want these privacy controls that Tim Berners-Lee and others are talking about. Um, adaptation is an, an interesting point here. And I guess you would think instinctively that those are using this technology more regularly, you know, uh, more widely, more imaginatively will be more adaptive with it. But I think there is another story there, which is, it may be that again, there may be a COVID analogy here, that some of the people that are most vulnerable to um, the displacement of those service sector, professional, um, white collar jobs, are a younger generation disproportionately employed in them. So I, I think, you know, there, there's probably more than one story to tell, but certainly if you were going to try and write my lecture as a book, then I think that one of the strands that you would want to develop much more strongly in it, yeah, was what would be that question of whether to what extent and in what ways this is generationally contingent or dependent. And, and if it is generationally contingent, then I suppose, Andrew, and this is where you put your uh, education hat on, we have to think about what the educational responsibility is. Uh, I think for me, a very, a very good question that will be in a lot of people's minds has been articulated by Honor O'Brolken. Honor asks, do you think young school children should be taught the nature of technology along with ethics and philosophy. After all, I suppose, Andrew, we grew up learning about the industrial revolution. So we have a, an awareness about what happened before and afterwards. Yeah. Uh, is the techno technological revolution a subject that should be yeah. taught in this yeah. self-conscious yeah. way? I mean, keep the questions rolling on folks because they're brilliant questions. Yeah. Everyone's got their, you know, very much the finger on the pulse. It's the Trinity uh, audience, they're great. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's an interesting analogy here with something that, you know, is uh, closer to my sort of uh, research interests as professor of global imperial history at Oxford. And, and that's been the um, fallout from Black Lives Matter. Uh, and as you know, Eve, I've you know, written a few op-eds on the um, 
uh, subject of slavery and statues and the history and culture wars. Now it is a, a, a very popular refrain now that, and I, I'm very supportive of it having been advised uh, uh, as a historian, the Windrush Lessons Learned Review, that we need to know more about the global aspects of our history, more about our imperial past, and more about Britain itself uh, as, a, as a diverse, increasingly diverse and inclusive society. I mean, within 50 years, 60 years, 70, whatever, of the Second World War, we have become uh, a linguistically, and I, you know, I mean, I, I think that uh, there is a story to be told here in the Irish context as well, but if you look at the United Kingdom, um, the United Kingdom has become a linguistically, religiously, ethnically diverse society in a relatively short space of its history in a way that it was never previously. Not to say that, um, uh, you know, there weren't people of other ethnicities um, present in Britain and, in, and playing an important part in British history, but in aggregate terms, that's an extraordinary change. And yet our school syllabuses um, very poorly reflect that often. And, but so you see the call for us um, to broaden, diversify and decolonize our education curriculum. You don't really see many calls in the press as the questioner maybe is implying for the equivalent of that around AI algorithms, machine learning, yeah, which are arguably just as consequential if in, in different ways for the times for which we're living through. So I would be hugely supportive of trying to build in, I, you know, I don't think I'm very well positioned to know exactly where in the, the curriculum, um, but to try and actually build in um, some time for those, I think, at primary as well as secondary level, to start critically reflecting on this technology that they're using. And I think it's both sides. It, it is its promise and potential as well as its pitfalls and perils. You don't want to demonize it, but I do think you want to generate a, a, a debate and a, an awareness around it. And I think it's very difficult to do that if you don't put it into some sort of historical perspective. We do need to try and think about what's different and distinctive about our big tech revolution in, compared to previous generations and its nature and consequences. There are profound ethical aspects to this that need to be unpicked. And that there's a degree of cultural sensitivity that's required for these debates in just as much as it is debates around Black Lives Matter. So, I mean, I think if the import of the question is that that is necessary, I, I would be um, very affirmative in my response. Uh, thanks, and, and a big challenge for the educationalists at all levels, I think. Um, but just uh, on the subject of the culture wars, and I know that uh, you've been fighting fires in your own work on, on this front, and indeed in Ireland, in parallel, we've had our own discussions, we're in the middle of discussions on these same topics, particularly to do with the legacies uh, of empire. Um, but in that vein, I want to go to a question that's come in from my colleague, Kieran O'Neill, um, from uh, Trinity's uh, School of History and Humanities. And Kieran notes that most of your slides represent uh, senior white male tech figures. Um, and he says, is there a case to be made for a greater plurality of voices in this debate? He says, is it largely a macho discourse? And I presume, Kieran, you're referring there to the, the tech discourse and to big tech in particular. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if I can tag on to that question, this aspect of race that you've touched on, um, uh, Andrew, frequently in the lecture and also now in the questions. 
how do you see the subject of the technological revolution being pluralized and reaching into areas of commentary and contribution that it hasn't yet accessed? Yeah, well, there's, you know, perhaps a challenge there for the, uh, the tech industry in terms of its own diversity and inclusion at executive level. I, I don't know what the figures are, but I, you know, I suspect that there, there is the problem that the question is perhaps alluding to. Um, in a piece that I wrote um, not long after the death of um, George Floyd on corporate statements and Black Lives Matter, uh, when I felt a lot of um, organizations um, were, were virtue signaling in those, in those statements, I, I said that I thought there was a need for action on um, education, action on acknowledgement and action on representation. And the all three are important, I think. I mean, I, I don't think uh, corporate statements on Black Lives Matter worked if they didn't go around that triangle. But the, 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 the representation is the diversification of uh, executive leadership of our um, workforce, in the case of a research council of our peer review and assessment systems. So I think big tech probably like many other industries has got questions to, we all have to answer on that. And, and, and what are the advances that we're making? As you probably know, Eve, we've, in the world of research councils, and I, I suspect many universities, we, we've made very necessary and important and uh, welcome strides on gender diversity. Mm. Uh, sometimes struggle to make the um, same strides with ethnicity, but then the, even there, the question, uh, there are complexities because sometimes we've seen that diversity in relation to our sort of South or East Asian population in the way we haven't in relation to the African Caribbean population, for instance. But I also think that another way of coming at this question is to think about how is big tech going to be regulated or regulate itself? And some of our listeners will be in the audience tonight will be aware of the decision that is pending, very big decision of Facebook um, allowing um, Donald Trump back online having deplatformed him. Now, what Facebook did, now people I think will be aware of the deplatforming. They may be aware that there is a decision in the offing about whether Facebook um, let Trump back. They might not be aware of what Facebook, what, how that decision is being taken. And effectively, Facebook has set its own independent regulatory body, a sort of Supreme Court, to make decisions about what is and isn't going to be allowed online. Got about 20 people there, I think building up to 40. People should be able to Google it as we speak. And you can probably, you know, as we're talking, someone can check out the diversity of those 20 people, yeah, who are already um, there and about to make a decision on Trump with 35 million Facebook followers, we might want to remind ourselves. And it will be a difficult decision because some people are uncomfortable about whether or not the fangs, so-called fangs, should be regulating themselves. Should they be the ones who are setting the limits of uh, free speech? Or are we effectively, you know, almost um, privatizing a government, what should be a government function in doing that? 
And Facebook are hoping that this sort of Supreme Court or independent regulatory body will onboard uh, other internet majors. So I think when we begin to look at how we're going to, to police and, and regulate uh, and, and think about the difficult ethical decisions that an online world um, is throwing to the service of our public life, we absolutely would want those bodies to be thoroughly diverse. It was what I was saying in the lecture is, you know, if, if, if any group, whether it's, you know, white males of a certain age or any other group, are overrepresented on those sort of regulatory bodies, we know what's going, going to happen in terms of the decisions that they're going to produce. So I think that the question has particular purchase, not just to um, in relation to the internet majors, whether they be in Europe or the US or China or Africa and the diversity of their workforce and executives, but actually um, equally, if not more so, with whatever bodies are going to be set up by government, by the internet majors or by anyone else to regulate our online world. I'm, I'm just going to play devil's advocate on that point though, Andrew, because one of the things that I think all of us, because we're all on the same side, I presume, in terms of the, the role of arts humanities, all of us are probably thinking uh, that in a way we are talking about the terms that you've identified, culture, history, and ethics in particular, in a somewhat monolithic way, and particularly with ethics, because surely one of the problems we've also got to address is who controls the discourse of ethics? Um, and it's fine for us as part of a university educated elite to take ownership of ethics, but ethics in itself must be subject to plurality. So these things are not necessarily oppositional in a simply simple binary format. Um, I wonder, I mean, if that question makes sense, how do you start to begin to think about whose ethics are brought into play? Yeah. I would agree with that, but I, I, I think as you travel down the road, you're, you know, you're going to have a whole set of, as you do with any, but it, you know, it won't be unique to big, you know, big tech and uh, the internet and AI. We've, we've seen it in relation to bioethics, uh, where interestingly, you know, most bioethics in this country is a collaboration between philosophers from the humanities and medics, um, but in relation to GM, uh, you know, it's almost easy to forget the, the extent to which those debates were, were raging several years ago. They've sort of calmed down now. And we'll see it in relation to machine learning and, uh, and AI and algorithms. But I would say that the, the first bit of the road that you travel down, so I think as you travel down that road, you're going to have all sorts of complexities to people taking very different perspectives. And, and, and to some extent, they might be, you know, culturally, religiously, ethnically sort of conditioned, the perspectives that sort of people are taking. But before you get there, I, I think there's a level of awareness that we don't have about algorithms introducing inadvertently, perhaps, but irrational or unjust biases that um, at the moment is almost invisible to us. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think if you look at facial recognition software, I, I don't say that everybody, you know, in sort of every part of the world would have the same view of it. But if you are training that software on historical data sets in which women and people of color are barely represented, so it's being basically trained on white males, mm -hmm. is going to produce certain results. 
Uh, and so I think there are some fairly basic or fundamental ethical questions that are being swept under the carpet. And if you read the press, there is some suggestion that those in the big tech companies that often are of a certain younger generation that are trying to challenge this are very quickly sidelined or kicked out. They're certainly not thanked for doing so. So, I mean, I agree that with, um, you know, as with any sort of ethical debates, uh, true in other spheres, as well as sort of big, big tech and AI and machine learning and algorithms, um, we're going to have a plurality of perspectives that we, we, we've got to deal with. I do think there are some fairly basic sort of straightforward fundamental questions which are, are not be, you know, being tackled at the moment. Uh, and at least needs to be a greater degree of awareness about those. So, you know, if we accept imperfect algorithms, we're aware of their imperfections and we're aware of the consequences of those imperfections in, in accepting them. Well, we've, we've touched on race, we've touched on gender. Uh, I'm going to go to the other elephant in the room, which is climate change and climate crisis, because yeah. several questions are touching on this. Vincent Lennon, I know, is asking about this context. And I'm going to go to Nora Moroni, who has articulated her anxiety uh, at uh, an unease, she says, at discussing uh, artificial intelligence and technological developments without any mention of climate change. And this is given the amount of extraction of energy, minerals, human labor required for the revolution that you've been describing this evening. Um, can we talk about this revolution without interrogating its physical footprint, she asks. No, we can't. And she's right to ask the question, but not many people do. Um, I have a little page in front of me, Eve, which was the, the one bit I didn't have time to work into the lecture. And the page basically says this, um, that you know we are living in a climate emergency era uh, and we don't acknowledge nearly sufficiently that mobile phones and tablets and PCs um, that have spawned this communications revolution are consuming the world's rare metals at an increasing rate. And nor do we acknowledge that the servers that power them are hugely energy hungry. The communications industry is now estimated, I think, to consume about 10% of global elect electricity. And it produces um, uh 50 more greenhouse gases than the aviation industry and when when do you read about that i i you you barely do so um you know whilst you've got to be careful not to i think demonize big tech and i, I mean every generation if you look at it historically has you know that some of the critics have uh, have written in that vein you, you equally need to be careful uh, careful not to sanitize it either um and so I think there's a really strong link to uh, the question of climate change uh, and environmental degradation and where we're going to be with uh, net zero, particularly in a COP26 year, that needs a lot more active exploration. And actually, you know, I'm, um, I will make a note to self the next time I give this lecture, I'll make sure that, that actually gets written in. It's, it's, it's sitting in front of me. I mean, one of the problems in discussing it is very few other people do. So you don't actually, you know, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be discussed. It absolutely should. But there's not a peg in the literature on the fourth industrial revolution to hang it on. You know, if you index a lot of the things that I was um, uh, the works that I cited tonight, you, you won't find anything. 
Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Nora, and, and Vincent Lennon for your questions on that and, and other people. Indeed, you've touched on uh, the, the climate and environmental impact uh, of, uh, of what we're talking about. I want to go to a slightly different question, and this is one of my favourite questions of the evening. It's coming from Glenn Loughran uh, from uh, TUD, and uh, Glenn asks, in the arts and humanities, we're used to discussing other modernities within the context of historical discourse. Can we imagine the reverse, a discourse on other futures read through the lens of alternative future studies? Now, you can see why I'm intrigued by this, Andrew, because we're, we're in a discourse where the word Orwellian is overused. Uh, those of us in literary studies are more than familiar with the dystopian and utopian discourses that have always accompanied various ideological trajectories. Uh, is there still a place for alternative imaginings on um, the technological future? And what role would they play? I mean, I think that, you know, that was what I was, I don't know if the, the questioner read it this way or listened to it this way, but that I think was what I was angling at at the end. Um, I think Eve, you, you may know um, that I, uh, have led, still leading, uh, an AHRC thematic programme called Care for the Future, Thinking Forward Through the Past. So it's partly a programme recognising that history doesn't just exist in history departments, but it's also a programme thinking seriously about temporalities. I think my reflection on that programme would be, if you think of that spectrum of past, present, future, is that humanities scholars tend not to traverse all of it. They, they, they're, they're either interested in, you know, relationship, well, present to past, past to present, you know, present to sort of, you know, future, um, rather than thinking about how all three of those things, how you talk about them simultaneously. But my um, dear colleague, Homi Barber, who's um, given this lecture before, has a wonderful phrase um, that, um, uh, apropos sort of social justice, and new social movements of our time, that we need to think proleptically into the future yeah. uh, about the demands that it's making on the present. And I think that is a really nice idea, you know, think yourself forward proleptically into the future. What sort of future would you like to inhabit? And, and having envisaged that sort of future, what demands does it make, yeah? Uh, on, you know, our, 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 the times in which we're living at the moment. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, in some ways is a manifesto for many of the social movements, whether it be around gender, uh, around ethnicity or around climate. Um, and I think that part of us taking control over the, the technological revolution that we're living in, because it does often feel as though it's taking control of us, I think. I mean, that's the risk. Us taking control of it is trying to say, well, what sort of society do we want to live in? a society that allows us all to contribute and feel part of and thrive and where does technology fit into that picture rather than I think I mean the problem I have with the automation which I started off with um, it was literature um, and that, that there's a proliferation of that automation literature as there would have been in I think you know the manufacturing steam revolution yeah of the 19th century and it, it is part of this you know it, it, you can go into a sort of doomsayer mode with this but it's it sort of the presumption of it is that this is all going to happen and it's going to happen this way, whether we like it or not. So how do we respond? 
Whereas I think the spirit of this question is, well, actually what sort of you know, societies are we trying to create and where do we situate technology within that, yeah? Uh, and, and imagining different futures uh, and then rewinding to the present to say, well, what is it that we have to do with this technology uh, in, in order to get ourselves on that journey? So it's a great question. It is, and, and I think it speaks to the, your emphasis, uh, Andrew, on the fundamental role of the creative imagination that we have to keep in, in tandem with this revolution. Uh, it's an absolute responsibility for the arts and humanities. Um, to, to, we've time for, I think, a couple more questions, but uh, this is, I'm going to combine uh, a question from, from Moran Nikaneda and Deirdre O'Doherty, uh, because they're both asking about the effects of technology uh, on a human sensibility. And Moran is asking about levels of anxiety being raised. Deirdre asks about whether the brain is going to be fundamentally rewired. And I know you're not a neuroscientist, yeah. but just in terms of how you've been looking at this landscape generally, do you uh, anticipate, do you suspect, do you speculate on the idea that the human that we might start with trying to position uh, within technology, the human itself is going to change dramatically, um, perhaps beyond recognition of what we're talking about today in arts and humanities. Yeah, well, having been a father to, to two daughters that have gone through teenage years, um, it, it's hard to think, uh, certainly amongst teenage girls where the rates of mental health problems have over the last 10, 15 years increased dramatically and alarmingly. We don't understand what the relationship of all of that is to new technology. And it's certainly not a, a straightforward causal relationship. Um, but I think I find it difficult to believe that there is no relationship there. So, you know, I, I approach that question sort of, um, uh, uh, with um, quite a strong personal investment in it, I think. The three questions that I asked very deliberately uh, as I was closing the lecture off, I think really do touch on the question. There is a surveillance aspect to this. So, you know, we are being watched all, more all the time through this new technology. I mean, the growth, I didn't give the figures, but the growth of CCTV cameras. Mm. And bear in mind, I think London is the, or one of the most um, populated cities by CCTV cameras in the world. So, you know, you can, you can go at China for this surveillance capitalism, but you might want to look in your own backyard, yeah, before you do. Um, how are we going to deal with a way of life where surveillance becomes the norm? Uh, uh, and, and to what extent is that going to feel uh, unacceptably or threateningly intrusive? Or, you know, as we walk the streets at night with those cameras, do we get a sense of security or safety from them? You know, discuss, debate. So there's a surveillance aspect. But I think as the question implies, it goes way beyond the surveillance aspect. There's a biometrics aspect. So the, and we've seen that with COVID, haven't we? You know, you could have ordered one of those devices where you could, um, uh, measure your oxygen blood levels. I don't know when those devices wouldn't have been available, but I suspect if you rewind several years, they probably wouldn't have been, yeah? So 
biometrics might help to monitor your health, sort of stress levels, but are we really there? I mean, it's amazing what, you know, some of the um, smartwatches can do now, but are we equipped to deal with the personalized information, the barrage of it that's gonna be involved? And if we think about wearable technology, will some of us be more psychologically resilient to that constant feedback, which is a part, I think, of you know, one feature of AI and machine learning gathering pace is the, the rapidity of that feedback. So in the cultural realm now, it's thought that users might actually, you know, be types of cultural experience which might actually be changing according to your feedback in real time. That's thought to be next generation. But what's the cognitive load of all of that? And I come back to that point, you know, more fundamental point that is, what is this relationship between our offline and online lives? Which is defining which? If we move to a world where our online lives mostly defines our offline life, yeah? Um, are we, you know, are we wired or geared up for that or not? I think these are really profound, you know, philosophical, um, sort of existential almost questions, which again, if you read around, you will not find a lot of good um, accessible writing sort of on them. And I, I think the arts humanities are there to open up questions that uh, like, you know, great literature that otherwise might sort of lay, lay dormant, but really need to be wrestled with. And, and on that note, I want to come finally to a practical question, which you might want to, to answer briefly, uh, Andrew, but from Xineng Wang. And Xineng asks, uh, my question, how can we encourage uh, big tech companies to be aware of the importance of collaborating with specialists from the arts and humanities? How do we set up the kind of relationship that you've been endorsing this evening? Well, if you wanted a really short answer to that question, I'd say go and spend some time at the um, Trinity Long Room Hub. Because I think, I think you've sort of lived and breathed that philosophy, yeah? Um, before it perhaps started becoming fashionable to. I mean, it's a serious answer. I mean, I think, you know, there is a, there's a, um, you know, it, it's fairly hardwired, I think, into the way that you and many of your colleagues think. Um, a slightly longer answer would be that I, I'm not in, I've never, when I was chief exec of the Arts and Humanities Research Council, I, I really never liked it when someone came up to me and, you know, effectively said their form of interdisciplinarity was more important than another, you know, more interesting and important, you know, usually because they thought it was more difficult. And, you know, I think that you, the types of knowledge that come to bear on a problem are, are, the, are the knowledges that help you think more constructively and critically about it, yeah? But I do think, that there are particular challenges to building bridges between the humanities and, and STEM and hard science that need particular forms of encouragement, nurturing and support by research funding agencies, by uh, leading research intensive universities and you know, our research institutes and centers. So the starting point has to be at how you get a dialogue across those. And the final thing I would say is to my humanities colleagues, I've given a whole lecture tonight, which is premised on the fact that we have a huge amount to offer our STEM or science colleagues, yeah, when talking about these subjects. Yes. And I, I, I deeply passionately believe that. I hope that came across. But 
we will do ourselves a disservice and our STEM colleagues a disservice if we do not think that we also have a lot to learn from them. And so the learning has to be two way. And it's not up, you know, just up to them to work out what they have to teach us, but it's up to us to work out what we need to know from them and learn from them. And so I think there's a sort of radical interdisciplinarity there. It's not more important than a historian working with an economist or a, you know, a geographer or a sociologist. It's different, but it is vitally needed, vitally necessary for our times. Yeah, and I, I think that's what you know. Uh, the Trinity Long Room Hub has been in the business in for, uh, for a decade or more, yeah? And so I think you're, you know, uh, if not uniquely, very, very well positioned to tackle that agenda. And of course, that is the correct answer, Andrew. And and uh, your words really, though, on a more serious note, have, have I think, given us uh, the shape of the mandate that we will take forward for this radical interdisciplinarity uh, with renewed attention and uh, and many thanks for that. I will thank you properly in, in a minute, but uh, to, to everybody listening, um, before I draw to a close, unfortunately, as we are running uh, close to time, I want to flag a couple of events that you might join us for uh, in the next few days. Um, next week on the, on the 27th of April, we're going to hold a panel discussion, which is to um, herald our new Beata Schuler Forum for Democracy. And this is on the media. We're looking specifically at the media. It's a panel discussion called Revisiting the Fourth Estate. Does the media still serve democracy? And uh, you can get the link for that in the chat or on the Trinity Longham Hub website. Uh, on the 7th of May, we'll have a special double cross-border symposium with Queen's University in Belfast on the legacies of partition, of course, in the centenary of uh, the year of partition in Ireland. And then I also want to flag a really exciting lecture on the 25th of May, and this is the finale of our Out of the Ashes series. Uh, we'll be featuring an online lecture from Richard Ovenden from the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and the author of Burning the Books, A History of the Deliberate Destruction of Knowledge. He will be absolutely terrific. So do keep an eye on the Trinity Longham Hub website for details of these events and many more, and also things that you may want to listen back to, including uh, this evening's lecture, which uh, um, uh, you may want to hear again. Uh, we are drawing to a close. I want to finish by thanking uh, the team at the Trinity Long Room Hub, as always, uh, for their efficiency and their work behind the scenes in putting tonight's lecture together. I want to thank everyone very warmly who's joined us and I would echo what Andrew said. There was just some terrific comments and questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to them all, but many thanks for everyone for engaging uh, so uh, enthusiastically with this topic. And finally then, uh, let me thank Andrew Thompson for a stimulating, insightful, informative, uh, and really engaging lecture that I think has given us uh, a roadmap uh, to go further with arts and humanities in the world of technology. So Andrew, my thanks on behalf of the Hub and everyone who's joined us tonight, and I hope we'll hear from you again very soon. Uh, with that, we'll draw to a close. Many thanks again to The everyone. Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages, towards the history of the Time Library. As well as being heard.
The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next ten years.